I began to realize that the power of the music is, goes beyond someone standing in the pulpit with an open Bible. That was simply servicing a congregation which, who were already converted. Mm-hmm. The word of God tells us that we should go into the world. And that for me opens a door and points me away from the church services. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. Reverend Basil Mead, MBE, is nothing short of a pioneer. He started the London Community Gospel Choir 40 years ago and, when he did, was described as scandalous by a national broadsheet after the choir appeared on a secular television show. And the church was not too happy either. But Basil has a fighting spirit and he continued with what he says God had called him to do, to bring gospel music to those who needed to hear it. Today, the choir is one of the most recognisable. I'm Charmaine Noble McLean and I caught up with Basil and began by asking him to reflect on his childhood in Montserrat and the man he called Da. Um, He was nicknamed, he was a a small stature man similar to me. Um, uh, Not an ounce of fat on him, I said, because his lifestyle was just so physical. Um, always, he's, he's a farmer, so he always had a cutlass in his hand. My dad stammered. Did he? And, yeah, if, you, if you're in the Caribbean in particular, people would tease you about your stammer. But uh, people were very, very, very careful when we had a cutlass in his hand. They were careful not to uh, tease him at that point. Of course. <laughs> That's because a weapon a of mass. Dangerous, <laughs> thing to do <laughs> there's a weapon of mass destruction right in front of you <laughs> <laughs> right there. and they know if he started to stab right <laughs> we'll go up into the air you better run <laughs> he was known for that the, the nickname the nickname him bulu bulu <laughs> he had a reputation in the village uh, you, uh, he has a bit of a temper and if you're going to uh, when you risk your life or risk the danger, you're going to tease him. But if you want to be calm, have a civil conversation, take your time listening to him as he stammered through his words, and then you can walk away safe. He sounds <laughs> like... He was the hardest, hardest working man in the village. Um, and one thing he instilled in, in, instilled in me and my brother, you work for your daily bread. You do not beg. Mm-hmm. If you're healthy... And you can work for yourself. You find bread, whether it's in the sea, from the soil, or from the trees around you. Be generous to people. When you have more than you need, you can help others. Then you do that. Even when you don't have more, you can share what you have if you find there. I mean, he was an amazing man. He was the the, the caretaker of the local Methodist church. Right. And uh, that, that job was such an important part. I mean, it wasn't a lot of work, but he did that religiously, mm-hmm. to use the terminology. That was uh, his way of respecting uh, 
uh, giving back to God, giving back to the community. And religiously, we went to church on a Sunday. Whatever was happening, church happened on a Sunday. So that's where all that began to take root in me from, from then. Um, like I said, he was a very hard worker. So whatever he did, we were there with him. He was like most of the people in, in the village during the uh, mantra was known for exporting uh, lime. Uh, that industry went down and then the textile uh, industry came in. So Montserrat then began to grow uh, cotton. Mm. Uh, the, the government would uh, rent a piece of land to, um, to local people, which they would prepare and plant cotton and sell it back to the government. And that's what we did. I was so doing that. Right. Yeah, working the land with him. I had my hoe, my brother had his hoe. We would get out there, we prepare the land together, and then we plant the cotton together. We would uh, reap the cotton, you know, the mm. balls of, of, of white, fluffy, uh, woolly stuff, get it off of it, get the balls out, get the seeds out, put it in the bag, bag and, and put it on the truck when it came mm. around. So physical work, I was doing that by the yeah. time I was, I was 9, 10, coming to come to UK so My very goodness. physically strong as well yeah I mean that's hard work but work that you because it was yours as a family you can yeah. be proud of so that's uh, yeah. really interesting to hear you around the age of nine your mom sent for you as many parents uh, who came to the UK did sent for the children or the spouse she sent for you was that you on your own um, yeah so you were you traveled uh, from Montserrat on your own at the age of nine to Southampton yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, there were about two or three other guys from my village who were also coming to England. Right. And uh, I remember dad saying, asking them, we call him Da, D-A, mm -hmm. which was quite Irish, actually. Um, and that, that's another story in, in itself. There was a lot of Irish uh, influence on Montserrat. And we, so we call him Da. Mm -hmm. And he was known as Da locally, as well as his other nickname. Um, he simply asked them to keep an eye on me. Um, and I remember walking up this this walkway from the uh, from land onto the the boat, and almost uh, you know, stumbling, almost falling into the water because my legs were shaking. I think so nervous. Uh, never seen a boat that size. I mean, you see them from from the land, you see them at sea, and they'll always look a bit smaller than uh, when you actually are standing in front of it. It's huge. And for a young lad, a uh, young, young country boy who had never been that close to the boat, it was a quite daunting thing to be mm -hmm. happening. So I remember walking on, onto the boat and uh, with, with these guys uh, ahead of me, uh, being guided to, to this cabin where I then lived for the next two, two stroke weeks at sea. Did you want to come to the UK at nine? You're with your dad, you've got your brother, you're, you know, life is good. Did you really want to come to the UK at that age? Or was there a level of, here's an adventure, I'll just go and see what, what this is like? It, it was probably more about the adventure. I mean, of course, I was very sad leaving my dad and my brother mm. and walking into an unknown life, an unknown experience. I was never sure what was going to be happening. I just know I was looked like I was going to be on this boat. Mm. Um, where I would end up, I was told is I was told it was England. But what did that mean to me? I didn't know. I just know my mom was there. Yes. And and so there was a sense of security, a little bit of security in that. That after a while I would I would be seeing my mother. Um yeah it was it was daunting. It was strange. 
because I remember walking onto the boat and the smell of the boat, which I uh, walked into the area, you would smell the food uh, that, that would have been you know, prepared to, to feed the people who were boarding. And might just add, this boat went to a number of islands. Monstrot was one of the islands that it was stopping at. And that, that was the, the way it worked at that time. So during the course of the next few weeks, uh, there would be Antiguans, uh, there might be Dominicans, uh, I don't know, maybe Barbadians mm. or Bajans on board as well. So, the, you know, so many different islanders came together for the first time and, and meeting, meet, meeting each other and, and formulating relationships and friendships, I'm sure, during that three-week three period. You arrived in Southampton, one of the ports, yes. and yeah. you arrived and mum was late. And you yeah. ended up, from what I understand, in is it left luggage lost luggage the lost property office. can you imagine <laughs> the lost property office uh dressed as if i was still in mantra i didn't look my little shorts and little shirt and, um yeah freezing cold oh this is february Aye. <laughs> in the middle of winter so you know even you were now we're wearing a coat and a hat and scarf you know how cold that is well, could you imagine for a young lad who has never experienced cold weather, walking into that atmosphere, it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, it, I think my skin tightened around my bones <laughs> doing that. <laughs> you were shrink-wrapped. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was this... cold. So the people had, had, had a little mercy on me and said, lad, we can't leave you out here. Come with us. It must have, I mean, it's wonderful that you can make light of it when you look back retrospectively. And I guess my parents and generation would say, you have to find joke in, in things, otherwise you're going to suffer, you're going to struggle. Your mum eventually did come and pick you up that day and you were found yourself in East London eventually. Uh, but the welcome to the UK, as cold as it was as you entered the docks of Southampton, it was still cold when you uh, ended up in school in East London. It wasn't a great time for you, was it? No, no, it wasn't. Um, uh, it was a challenge on both sides, because uh, I, I mean, I, when I look back on it, I said, well, a lot of these children there, I think they said it might be about 300 odd children in the school, predominantly white. There was one other black boy in the school. Uh, in the so whole we were school. we were outnumbered, yeah. <laughs> to say the least, which was expected, obviously. Mm. Um, Georgie, his name was Georgie. His family were from um, from Antigua, and they actually knew my my mother. Um, he lived on the same road, Thistlewaite Road in Lower Clapton. I always remember it, and uh, he was probably the best reader in the school. I was I was amazed at his English. Mm. When he spoke, he spoke perfectly as well, the Queen's English. Wow. <laughs> this lad was, and whenever they had anything to be ready, they would call Georgie out to come and come and read. Um, so, of course, we, we linked together almost immediately. Um, and the, the experience, my first playtime was when uh, I realized that, that I, I had to be careful in how I integrated or, or navigate uh, making friends in, in the school because I, I got into a fight with the, the school's bully who I didn't know he was the school's bully. Um, I, I tend to go big and hard when I do things. <laughs> <laughs> why, why walk lightly, just step firmly and go straight to the top? Wow. Um, there, there so you, you went to him, he didn't come to you? Uh, well, 
Confession time, Basil. I pushed, <laughs> I pushed him down. We were playing bonder. They were playing bonder. So someone invited me to come and join. Uh, 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 somebody wanted, wanted to make me feel like it was part of the, the, the whole thing. And, and uh, I went and saw this guy standing up and nobody pushing him. And everybody, everyone else was being pushed down on the floor. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, push, to push him. And how dare I? push this guy down you, you don't touch him he's the school's bully he got up and just whacked me in the eye oh wow i saw all of the stars on the <laughs> heaven i keep saying that i still remember it today <laughs> my eye literally exploded wow and uh, that sent me into a frenzy and i jumped on this guy and um they had to go inside and get the school the school teacher to come out and release him from the grip that I had him My crying goodness. his eyes out, yeah, <laughs> crying his eyes out. Um, and uh, they gave me a good telling off. I gave him a bit of a telling off, but I think I got the severe end of the uh, stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it wasn't I the was cutlass. The guy. He was crying. I wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't the cutlass. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, my uh, I I used my fist instead. Mm. And, you know, I never had a, a confrontation again in that school. Never. Because, um, yeah, I think he had a reputation and I seem to have put that into perspective. So growing up, uh, you know, as you said, you were one of two black children uh, in that, you know, quite a large school. Did race ever factor in those early years when you were here in the UK? Did you experience direct racism um, outside of... Um, I mean, that doesn't sound like it was racism. This was just kids getting into a fight. But did you experience racism and did that impact your how you formed, you know, your thoughts in terms of your, what you do now? From the start, I became aware that uh, it was it was a bit of a hostile environment. I, I was in, uh, walking into, basically, mm. um, because the shops, the local shops, which were literally five-minute walk, five-minute walk from, from the house, uh, there, there were signs. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Did you understand it at that age? Yeah. Uh, at age, age nine, I, was, uh, uh, I would be 10 in May. I was in February. Um, so I, I, I could read quite clearly. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I thought it'd be odd and strange. And um, I believe I, I actually walked into one shop. Probably did, didn't have the sign, but the looks... I remember getting the, the looks of uh, unwelcoming looks. Um, I never forget those, those times. And uh, I look back on them now that I've been in the UK. I am now 71. I, so it, you look, you look like 60 years of my life. Uh, mm. Seeing things change from, uh, when you say things change, it's quite a general comment. But you see the change in people. That's that's where it becomes more specific. It's, yeah. it's where the people, the generations have changed. And you look at some older folk now, as I've done down three years, and uh, you recognize that they would have belonged to those generations that were most hostile and, and prejudiced, hateful. Yeah. Uh, I remember walking the streets and, and people would just open their car windows and, and shout out, Wog, nigger, they hold, hold on, mm -hmm. go back to your country. Yeah, you know, all that sort of thing. And you cannot forget those things. Um, yeah, and as I said, you, you, you see people and uh, 
they look elderly and you say, well, they, they probably were f from that generation. Um, but the generations that have followed, I think, as they have got to know and uh, live next door to, gone to school where they played football or played whatever sport with, go to clubs and the pub where there might be black people and realize they are <laughs> just have a different color skin, come from a different part of the world. Are human beings just like you and the normal people with a different culture, a different story to tell of how they, they um, yeah, how they have lived and, mm -hmm. and, and why they are here. I think that's what one important point that people began to learn that we were actually our parents and those uh, children that came were invited by the government here to come to help to rebuild, to help, not to take over, but to help mm -hmm. to rebuild. Um, and, you know, I rationalized with things after I, I realized a lot of ignorance was involved in the racism that we all felt, uh, uh, experienced. Um, Oftentimes so, people say racism is a mix of ignorance and fear. Yeah, and that is exactly what it was. Uh, fearful because of maybe some of the things they've read or heard and, um, you know, the conversation like that might go in their homes, in pubs and so forth. And it fed that, that racism and the hatred. But mm -hmm. when they got uh, allowed or for what, maybe through accidents in some cases, had a conversation with the, with some, somebody who was a different color, a different culture, they begin to lose that because information is, is shared. Mm. And normalizing or normality is being recognized. They're just like me, really. We are just like them. And, by, you know, and, and so they begin to lose that, uh, that fear uh, and, and all the ne other negative things that, uh, that people have. We're going to talk a bit about some of those things you've just been sharing there about hostility, fear and um, acceptance, you know, people understanding difference being simply just external rather than necessarily internal. Um, there was hostility, unfortunately, in the environment that you were growing up in. Your mom um, was uh, got married to another man and there was hostility there, as we hear in many other households, I guess, unfortunately. That experience led you to decide to leave the home. Um, tell us about that point where you had to make that decision to leave. Um, uh, yeah, at age, age nine, at age 10, uh, my then uh, stepfather was more accepting. I was a young lad. But as I, I grew up and um, began to grow into a young man, I was a bit more of a threat in particular because I approached him about the way I felt he was treating my mother. I, I would hear the arguments uh, from their bedroom at, at night and uh, saw how he treated her around the house and so forth. And it just came to a point where I approached him one day after a really, um, yeah, a furious argument that they were having at night. And I approached him the next day and he just thought I was out of order. Uh, not respecting him, uh, I thought, it's, you know, respect didn't come into it at all. At that point, uh, I didn't care. I didn't care how big he was. I didn't care that he was my mother's husband. He obviously didn't love her and he was abusing her. And I was the other man in the house. So I, I, I approached him and uh, he didn't like it. So he came at me with a hammer 
I went and got a hammer and came at me and uh, we wrestled and uh, I was strong enough to hold him off and, and uh, pushed him in, in, into a corner. We ended up in a little toilet. There's hardly any space, but I was able to get away from him. Ran out the house and um, I, I think I, I ended up down in the West End, some uh, Piccadilly or Leicester Square, I think it was. And, and just came across this guy who was advertising for people to go to Germany to sell encyclopedias. I mean, uh, <laughs> this this story is incredible. You yeah. ended up, I mean, after all of that, mm. you know, uh, and I guess in the heat and the emotion of it, you just, you know, you just go, you just do what you have to do. And yeah, rationale, yeah. rationale doesn't come into it. Yeah, no fear. I had no fear. I lost all of that. I think my mind, uh, I think my heart was bursting with um, pain mm. and hearing my mother crying and this guy just abusing her. Oh, my goodness. I, I didn't think about my own safety. I just wanted to make this man know that he, he can't do this anymore. Before we go on to talk about how you ended up in Germany and then back into the UK again, um, mm. do you do you ever look back and can you understand why that relationship was the way it was? So, you know, retrospectively, sometimes we can say, OK, I can understand what was going on here. Do you see that? And I want to ask you one more question. Is there any forgiveness there? Uh, big question for me. I have never seen him again. He, uh, my, my daughter, my daughter, my mother actually inherited his daughter who came to live with us. Right. Um, and at that time, he and my mother had uh, my sister. And she had just been born in February and I immediately began looking after her. So I mm. was nappy changing at, at nine. I was cooking, preparing dinner because mom would be out working and uh, yeah. we dropped the baby off to a minder and uh, I started preparing the meal, the family meal before. So th th there was a lot going on there and uh, he didn't talk much. He didn't speak much. There wasn't a lot of interaction between the two of us. So as, as, as I grew up, he was just this man who was my mother's husband. He wasn't my father. There was no relationship, really. There, was, there wasn't a relationship. And I suppose the, the whole thing just compounded when he began abusing. We had moved house by then hmm. down into Dalston Lane with May Hackney, uh, near to May Street. And that's where the whole thing kicked off. Um, so we didn't really have a relationship. And he, there's some strange behaviors coming from him. And I think uh, he and mom disagreed on, on a number of different things. Um, for example, uh, my school friends could not visit me at home. He was imposing all sorts of really weird rules. So my friends couldn't come to the house. If they, they wanted to come to, to see me, I had to go outside to see mm -hmm. them. Uh, we had to go to the park or something, but they couldn't come inside and have a, a glass of lemonade with me. It wasn't so, you know, it wasn't a happy place to be. So all of the, the sort of frustrations built up over the time. And then when he began abusing mommy, it was just that was it was too much. It was absolutely too much. Mm. Um, and as a result of that, you know, um, uh, I began I was going to church, Quickfield Road Church, New Testament Church of God. And there was Clapton. one lady in Clapton. That's where I started going to church properly. I used to go Sunday school at the Methodist church before, but that's where I really became part of the youth department. 
And that's where I met Olive Paris, Dr. Olive Paris. Um, yeah, the, 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 the whole thing was, was so painful and frustrating for me. I walked with, lived with pent up aggression. And one lady came to me and said, you know, you look like you're always ready to fight. Mm. I'll never forget that. She says, your face looks like you're always ready to fight. And that is exactly what it was because I, I was ready to burst. I wanted to unleash on something or somebody because of how I was living my family life. I couldn't get away from it. Mm. And so running, getting away from that house after my, my fight with my stepfather was that bursting that door open. Uh, that released me into uh, an adventure that took my life into a, a different, another place. You're listening to The Profile with me, Charmaine Noble-McLean, in conversation with the Reverend Basil Mead, MBE, and founder of the London Community Gospel Choir. In part two, we will learn how after that failed trip to Germany, he found his way back to the UK and saw his life turn around to something incredible. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. You're listening to The Profile. Welcome back to The Profile with me, Charmaine Noble-McLean. Earlier on, we heard about the conflict between the Reverend Basil Mead and his stepfather, which led him to leave his family home as a teenager. Basil found himself in Germany on the promise of a money-making scheme. Well, when he realised that that wasn't going to happen, he managed to make his way back to the UK and was reconciled with Minister Dr Olive Paris, a family friend who took him in and helped to turn his life around. She was the, the youth minister in the church at Clapton at the time. And so she took the Tuesday youth meetings. Uh, people like Joel Edwards, who was in Wilsdon at the time, he, he was already an outstanding young speaker. And so he would be invited over occasionally to come and speak at the youth meetings. And that's where I, I met Joel. Mm. Um, and she, yes, I think she saw something in me. Again, she saw the anger that I carried permanently. It was part of my personality, I suppose. I wasn't aggressive, outwardly aggressive with it, but it, it just, it, it, I wore it, I wore it, wore it well, because it was in living, it was living inside of me. Mm-hmm. And, but she would talk to me. And, and um, I think when I called her, that kind of confirmed with her that I needed help. And she was prepared to um, to help me to get through whatever I was going through. She said, come and stay here until you decide what you want to do. And I promise you, Charmaine, that was the best decision I could I have ever made 
one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Because mm-hmm. that is where I began to find oh, that there, there is a different environment or different way to live for me. I didn't have the sort of negative, aggressive, argumentative environment that I lived in, existed in at, at home. She created an environment for me. I, I had left full school at 15. So I had basic vocabulary uh, and, and, and education and so forth. So she immediately she went, she went and bought books uh, and would set me English lessons. Um, she used to do crossword puzzles. And so she taught me, she said, this will help you with your, your words and uh, help your vocabulary. And uh, up to this day, I'd, I've got, I, I will buy certain newspapers to do the crosswords. By my bedside, when I travel, I travel with a crossword book um, because I enjoy it. Mm. Um, and it stimulates my thinking and, and, and so much of me. It gives me great pleasure. So up to this, that's part of her that has continues to live with me. She provided me with uh, the type of meals that I had never had. She called me her little piggy after a while. <laughs> <laughs> she used to nickname me her little piggy because she... She didn't eat much herself, but she had would a, cook a, a meal for four persons. <laughs> you, were a young man, you had a young man's appetite. I'm sure we can yeah. all understand what you mean by yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my physics should testify to that. that you know, <laughs> what a kind, but what a kind woman she obviously was to you, opening up her doors to you. Um, and um, not only guiding you and giving you what you needed in terms of a home, and a heart but also academically she was helping you mm. where you may not have been naturally where you may not have been academic she was helping you equipping mm. the tools that you needed to mm. make a life for yourself now I heard a rumor that she gave you a pile of vinyl records and <laughs> this was also instrumental in you know you being involved in forming a choir on her request at her request yeah that is how I, I started on my choir journey um, by this time, she had left the New Testament church because she was an evangelist. She, she had held meetings all over the New Testament church branches, wherever they are. They were in UK, and she was also going abroad. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, my my on the road experience has not only been with LCGC. I started way before that. Yeah. So her I've been, yeah, I've been I've been traveling with places like Greece, and Canada, and uh, like I said, Bermuda, and and, and so forth. Um, being her uh, accompanist, her, her musician. Mm. Um, but there, there was just so much detail, as, as you know. She gave me this stack of records because by the time, it was a young church, but we had about 15, 14, 15 young people in the church and said, Basil, we need a choir in the church. We need a singing group. And she said, I have gospel records, which I need you to listen to and uh, teach the songs. Select some of the songs and start teaching them. I had a my my partner in crime at the time was Carl Booth. He he was the lead singer of Canos, uh, that soul, the gospel soul band that we formed later. Amazing. His son Jason Booth is in Canada, but he was notorious in London many years for for being a very hard taskmaster, teaching gospel choirs and 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 so forth. He was back here last year. Mm. We, we had we had, a, we had a great family reunion. Um, but Carl was with me and together we got the young people together and listened 
spend, we would spend, just the two of us, we would go to her home uh, and uh, we spend hours until just listen to records, gospel records. And who were the artists that you were listening to at that time? James Cleveland, Shirley Caesar, Mighty Clouds of Joy, the Jubilee Singers, Andre Crouch. I mean, you're talking about the iconic. Yeah, the great and the The iconic greats of gospel music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the Thompson Community Choir, the, the Southern California Community Choir, those were the people uh, whose music inspired me deeply. And those are just some of them, the Clark sisters. The list, the list just goes on. And the, you know, you listen to them now, and a lot of the music you hear now is taken from influences that people who listen to them were, uh, were uh, blessed to, um, to get into their lives and, and copy some of the style of playing. My mentor with Hammond organ playing was Billy Preston. I was very happy to meet him before he passed. I went to watch him play for Eric Clapton, which, is, which was his last gig. And through that, I met Sam Moore of Sam and Dave because they were best buddies. Wow. Yeah, you know, the connection just continued. So from Olive Paris, she set my life on a, a route and, and that woman, she was not a, just a wonderful minister. I saw amazing miracles in the meetings that I played for for her, but she was a mother to me. She was that minister when she's out there in the public, but at home, she was a mother to me. And, uh, you know, I have my blood mother what I love very much. Um, but Olive was a different mother. She didn't birth me, she might as well have birthed me. So I have two mothers. Mm. And I will always celebrate them both, but I celebrate Olive for different, bringing so many different elements into my life that changed the course of my life very, very positively. And I really give everything that I have achieved in the musical world down to her influences and the examples that she set me. She loved me more than I could ever hope for. And she demonstrated uh, my, I learned to drive because she insisted I learned to drive at 17 because she insisted that I take and paid for those lessons. I, I took 17 lessons, I believe it was, 17 lessons uh, at £1.25 per session. Wow. We're not talking about how long that was. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in. When I what hear pound? the cost of driving lessons today. Did, did she have children of her own? No. Did you witness became, her? So you became her child? Effectively, yeah. in many... Wow. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, she made me woman. feel proud. She made me feel proud to be associated with, to mm. be loved by. She was very public with it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it caused some jealousy in places, but um, people just realized that's, that's her heart. And uh, she, was, she was proud that um, and it, it, she showed her, her confidence in me in her church she went out and bought a brand new Hammond organ with two Leslie's. I mean, that was phenomenal back in the day because it was the 1970s. There weren't churches around with, that, with a Hammond organ. Yeah. But she went out and she paid for that uh, from Boosie and Hawks. She sounds like then, a very industrious woman. Well, this was a woman who was, uh, you know, a bit of a trailblazer in her own right. You were mentioning yeah. earlier that, you know, when PCs came out, she bought one. She was just, in, yeah. she was on top of, her, on the, of these sorts of things. Yeah. Change. Yeah, she wanted to wanted to record the things that were happening in her meetings, and so she 
went out and bought a press, a printing press, and taught herself how to use that. And so in the bottom uh, one part of the church, she established that uh, her printing area. And she would, after the meeting, she would spend days in there designing the magazine and printing it herself. My goodness. I mean, it's an incredible woman. I mean, incredible with, woman. with what God had already put in you in terms of your person, personality, skills and abilities that to be nurtured, and colliding yeah. that with what Olive had in herself, that clearly now explains why and how you took LCGC as it became in 1982 to where it is now. There isn't, there's no fear and there is no reason for you to stop. No, but let's talk. absolutely. Absolutely. I had many discouraging things said to me. Many, many discouraging things, but... I, what what I were some told, of those discouraging things? Ah, come on, Basil. LCGC is finished now. LCGC is finished now. Why? You know, yeah, you need to look after your family. Because um, they were struggling. At their, you know, because I left my previous job, mm. walked out on it, which I earned good money. I worked hard. I worked uh, very hard to earn good money. But with the beginnings of LCGC, there was no money to be paying the mortgage or to be even buying food for my family. And um, people like Vanetta, my, my, my daughter, and uh, Leon, Stephanie, because they were the ones with me at the time, we couldn't put carpet on the, on the floor of our first home. But as God began to provide, uh, and, you know, the early days, I didn't know how to negotiate with the people who were coming to hire the choir. I had to learn, made many mistakes. We did many things that maybe we should have been paid much better for. Mm -hmm. But just to getting some funds coming back into our bank account, doing something and getting funds coming back. At the same time, we were being ridiculed for being ungodly, you know, uh, singing with non-Christian people, singing and in non-Christian environments and, and doing all the things. But, you know, I was convinced that God gave this particular mission to me. So I would say to some of the negative people, I said, listen, you were not there when God gave me this. You were not there. Mm. And so I, you know, thank you for your comment, but I'd um, rather continue with what I believe God has given me to do. I, I was never rude to anybody. Because um, I think that was pointless. It was their understanding. It was their limited way of looking at things. Uh, I didn't think I uh, see myself as anyone superior. I was just confident and, and, and sure that, and I was committed to it. Whatever happened, it, it, I feel this is God's plan for me. I, like I said, I left school at 15. I didn't have uh, resources behind me. I didn't have anybody really giving me great gui guidance on what to do. But this thing dropped into my spirit when I met Olive, and that's where it all happened. Uh, you, I'm determined. When you when you um, and when you talked about um, God giving you a direction in terms of the choir and having to deal with the negative comments that came predominantly from the church, um, yeah. you know, in terms of, yeah. you know, a choir that's performing and performing with non-Christians. This is not mm. what you're supposed to be doing, you know, in the world, but not of the world. And all of that, I'm sure you must have heard. What was it that kept you going? I mean, well, let me ask you this question. Did you intend for LCGC to be the kind of choir it is, or did that happen as it evolved? It evolved. 
as, as I said, I wasn't sure. Um, but I was prepared. I was open-minded enough. Um, and I think right from my church with, with Olive, I saw the, um, the things that she did. And uh, I saw the reactions or responses to from audiences when they heard and listened to gospel music. I would listen to the radio and the comments. And invariably, the comments, oh, it's, it's fantastic. It makes me feel, it does this to me. And this was not necessarily church people. Mm. So I, I began to realize that the, the power of the music is, goes beyond someone standing in the pulpit with an open Bible, reading from the Bible, and expounding from that text. It, we would get off on that as church people. We recognize the language, we recognize the story, and if the preacher preached the same message next week, we would respond to it in the same way. So to me, that was simply servicing a congregation which, who were already converted. Mm-hmm. The word of God tells us that we should go into the world. And that for me opens a door and points me away from the church services. Points me into unknown territory, confidently trusting that God has given me the tools and the message and the styling of my message. And that's another thing that opens another conversation because some folk feel that you need to say the things you say in church services when you go out of the church service. You cannot do that. You need to communicate with that audience on a different way. You need to present the message in a different form. That I learned. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I realized that uh, the the, the mission, the purpose of the London Community Gospel Choir was not within the church services, was not at conventions, was not in the uh, regular services that happened to service the church community. We were called to service the non-church community. When you are out servicing, as you said, the non-church community, bringing the good news through wonderful music, as you've done for decades now, how do you manage to, um, and, and therefore the gate is open, you can, you can go anywhere, there is nobody that you can't be among, there's no way you can't be, mm. I guess. Mm. How do you maintain that sense of um, being connected to the vine that is connected to Jesus in spite mm. of, you know, some, some people get nervous just because you happen to be performing with, I don't know, um, uh, I don't know, um, you know, Live Aid was a big one, I know, for you guys, because that was the big AIDS benefit concert. And I guess the church was like, no, 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 we're not supposed to be involved in that. Oh. To, George, to the George Michaels, to, you know, the very yeah, big oh, names. My. That was but, enormous. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so how do you maintain that sense of integrity, I guess, to your mm-hmm. faith? as well as integrity to your mission. How do you manage mm. that? Because that's quite a difficult balancing act to, to have, particularly is, because you're in such a, you're, you're in the upper echelons of the celebrity yeah. world, aren't you? So. Yeah, it's edgy, it's, it's, it's on the edge. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a, a difficult area for some to understand. And um, I mean, I tell this story all the time, but uh, you know, in interviews, uh, I, I've, I've got to repeat things that I know definitely happened. On that particular libate, we were in uh, our 
green room as the, the room that was large enough to contain LCGC. There might have been about 70 or 80 of us mm. on that gig. Uh, and we were having our devotion. We were singing as we do. Uh, the door was open. Rock, the musicians, rock bands, I'm talking about guys dressing their heavy leather, the usual rock, uh, rock band look. They, they saw, they heard, they started walking into the room. Mm. And uh, they stood behind us at first. We, we continued, we didn't stop. And they came and they saw that we were linking hands and they asked if they could be part of what was going on because it drew them into the room. They said, we, it, my, my skin began to walk or, or, or your tingles. I began to get the tingles just hearing the sound that you got, you guys made. And this is why you're worshipping. Absolutely. Wow. So it's not necessarily that, again, I say, you don't have to walk with the Bible in your hand. Nor did I have to preach a sermon to them. It, it, you know, sometimes it's self-glorifying. It? It's make you, uh, you want to be the champion, the one who brings the word that everybody's converted to. It's not about that. It's the atmosphere. We, we were sowing a seed into these people's lives. And that is what I am about. I don't need glory for that. God is the one who's sowing and it's God's seed, not mine. Mm. it's that seed and interest in in what it is that made us do what we do that made that made us be the type of people that we are is that curiosity it's interesting you say that recently the evangelical alliance which was headed up by your old friend and dearly uh, dearly loved friend joel edwards um they released a survey recently where they asked a panel of non-Christians about their experiences of the Christian faith and Jesus. And one in three non-Christians said that they wanted to know more about Jesus after simply having a conversation with a Christian about him. And so this reminded me of what you were just saying there about the the attracting people to what it is that moves and motivates you and London Community Gospel Choir. Yeah. That's what you said. Is it? I mean, I've got so many questions to ask you. I know we've skipped over lots of different things that Mm -hmm, you've done. mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would have done as you look back? You know, you're in your 70s, still looking like you're in your 40s, uh, (laughs) echoing your dad's strength, I guess. Is there anything that you would have done differently? I know you said that you had to learn how to manage a whole choir and, you know, you might have negotiated things differently. But I think more in terms of your own journey and the choices that you've made is there anything that you would have done differently when you look back at your life um uh, i think there, there are a number of things i i i, I look back and I, I know i made many mistakes i think one one of the casualties of of this journey has been my my marriage to andrea i think there were mistakes made there uh look about it thank god we we are, we are friends and we do speak. We, we have a lovely family, lovely children, lovely grandchildren, and we, we, we're still able to give them that, that grandparents' experience, uh, experience <laughs> that, uh, okay. yeah, yeah that, that is good for everybody. We're very proud of what we achieved together. But uh, I think that, uh, that relationship was uh, one of the casualties. I would have... Yeah, love to have made different decisions. I think we both say I don't mm-hmm. that. Um, I think the way that the business side of LCGC 
has developed. There are mistakes there because um, I've always wanted to have independence. I've never wanted to uh, be under the control of a record label because um, I, I see my, I'm a black person. I'm very proud of that. Uh, I love all peoples as long as we are uh, respectful and loving, kind to each other. That's that is it. There are many black folk that I would not want to have friendships with, and uh, <laughs> um, there are some amazing. In fact, I think probably most of the significant support that LCGC has been receiving has been from the white community. So you know, you know that taught me a great deal. The business side of it, I've always wanted to um, retain the leadership. Uh, somebody who looks like me because we don't have much as a community that the rest of the world can look on and say that black folk in UK have established and have maintained something that is iconic that we could look upon and celebrate. That has been one of my uh, driving forces mm. behind keeping LCGC, doing what I can to keep LCGC going. So uh, I am now handing over the, the reins to Leon, Miss Master Leon Mead, Mr. Leon <laughs> Mead, the two-year-old baby who was on stage with LCGC at the Queen's 60th birthday. Wow. He's, he's been on tour from that age. Wow. So rightly so, he is inheriting the, the challenges of, of, of taking this organization to another level. But hopefully it's something that uh, the whole community, UK community, can look upon and mm. celebrate for mm. doing what it has achieved so far it has underachieved i will not say anything different but uh, i do not see that as a reason to give up we will go on to do greater things i'm sure god being involved absolutely and it's lovely to know that you've you, your legacy will be continued through your son and therefore you know through the generations future what, what do you think about the state of christian music here in the uk particularly when it comes to division on ethnic right on ethnic lines i guess mm -hmm. it, it it's always been a tricky area in terms of the um the opportunities i think for black christian artists uh it it is easier for the the white christian artists to get there stuff together because the, the owners of the record labels, the people with the resources and funds are white and they're from the white church community. So it's much easier, faster, quicker to get a, a, a white artist up from practically nowhere onto a stage, get them recorded, um, get their product into the church, into the wider world. That's UK, that's Nashville, America, that's Australia. That process is much, much quicker and uh, I think easier. The support that they get that uh, is, is affordable uh, seems to be readily there. Whereas with the black community, it's much more of a challenge. Um, the black community has a different attitude to music and musicians in our churches. Uh, I have been through it. Mm. Fortunately for me, I was appreciated in the church that I was really got my, my footing, my beginnings and my, my, my beginnings in. Uh, Olive supported, I mean, she went out, got the best instruments and uh, uh, the respect that I received and the musicians who came, you name Howard Francis, Nicky Brown, John Francis used to leave his church and come down to my church. 
um, to just be part of, of what we were doing. We had a good choir there and, and celebrated that well, but didn't have the same sort of support and celebration for the black musician. These are the people who would write the music. Mm. These are the people who would be in church every Sunday. They paid for the instruments themselves. They got their tuition, which they paid for themselves. So the church wasn't supporting. And even after these guys became to a, uh, came to a point where they were professional artists who could earn their living playing music, the church hadn't, black church didn't wake up to that. Mm. And so uh, a lot of these guys were happy to spend their time in church, spend their resources to give their talent to church, but they could not do it because these were guys who had mortgages, cars, and, and the same sort of need for resources as any other musicians. So they had to find ways of being musicians, not bank clerks or, or not engineers or electricians, they're artists. Mm. And so they wanted to support themselves and their families through the gift that God has blessed them with. And that's why we find a lot of our uh, artists are playing uh, non-church music by day, but they will be in church on Sunday, if at all possible, because that's where their heart is. Mm. If the black church would see this and support it and uh, give more time and flexibility, we would still have gospel choirs in our churches. But we would so still have gospel choirs. We do not have a gospel choirs in our service, services and our churches anymore. Why? Because uh, the white church community have organized themselves. They had the support systems recording their artists' music, which they then market and promote into our black community, which our black churches are more than happy to accept uh, because they uh, see it as a way forward. Mm. At the same time, the cultural music, gospel music our, of our community is thrown in the dustbin. I do not feel happy. I cannot celebrate that particular piece of action mm. because it's denying who we are and it's saying again, you are better, what you have is better than ours. It brings, it makes my heart want to cry mm. because I know how passionate I felt about it down through the years and celebrated it. It is not being celebrated. We're not celebrating who we are. Mm. It's almost as if the um, those outside of the um, the African Caribbean diaspora don't can see the value, but we can't see it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like it's always been like that. Mm. It has to be down to the leadership, the decision makers in our community. When will they wake up and own the fact that it is okay to be different? It doesn't mean you're racist. You're just saying, well, this is who I am. I see you, I recognize you and what you bring to the table, but this is also, this is me. I want you to also appreciate this and let us have an exchange, a sharing. We can take the praise and worship on and, and mix it with uh, in our services, but we must celebrate gospel music because it is our culture, it's our inheritance.
listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.